Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. This season consists of both in-person library events as well as virtual facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. That will include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. So with that, I will turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Good evening and welcome to Club Book with Pung Shepherd. My name is Stacy Hendren and I'm the manager of the Northtown Library in Blaine, part of the Anoka County Library System. I'm thrilled to be hosting our featured guest and will be your moderator for tonight's event. Before I introduce tonight's guest properly, allow me a moment to tell you a bit more about the unique series that is bringing her to you. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Anoka County is the co-organizer of this evening's talk. Thanks also to partnering bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. Now for our featured event, speculative fiction writer, Hung Shepherd burst onto the literary scene in 2019 with The Book of M. In this critically acclaimed debut, people all across the globe are mysteriously shedding their shadows and a few days later, losing their memories as well. Booklist praises the premise as existential apocalypse that is eerie, dark, and compelling. The Book of M1 Shepherd, the coveted Newcomb Institute Award for Debut Speculative Fiction. Her anticipated follow-up, The Cartographers, hit shelves this past March. It centers around Nell Young, a budding scholar born to renowned maps expert, Dr. Daniel Young. When her estranged and enigmatic father dies under mysterious circumstances, Nell comes into possession possession of an old highway map. It looks unremarkable, but harbors fantastical and dangerous secrets. In a rave review, book page says, the cartographers is wildly imaginative and totally mind-bending in the best possible way. Shepard has crafted a juicy mystery masquerading as a grown-up scavenger hunt. After a short talk by our guest and some initial questions from me, We'll have time for audience Q&A. Simply drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook and our tech manager will route them to me. If you prefer to contribute a question a bit more anonymously, you can also send a private message to Club Book here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. Now please join me in welcoming Pung Shepherd. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction, Stacy. Uh, and thank you, Stacy and David, uh, for having me here. Um, I am really excited to be here tonight because, uh, like many of our listeners, I think I have um, had a love affair with reading and books ever since I was a child. And so libraries have been a huge part of my life. I, um, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and I spent uh, many afternoons after school at my local branch of the Phoenix Public Library, uh, basically devouring everything I could get my hands on. And uh, I have three brothers, but at the time only one of them was also old enough to read. And he, let's just say he was not as enthusiastic about books as I was, but we got him a library card anyway so that I could check out twice as many books every time I came. Um, so it feels very special to be able to talk about the cartographers with you all tonight because, um, as I'm sure we'll discuss later in the hour, 
so much of this book is set at a library. Um, so to give you the elevator pitch, the cartographers is a mystery, uh, kind of a, a mystery and a fantasy together. And I always say that it's a novel about map making and family secrets. And I think to set the stage for our talk, um, I thought I would read just a little bit from the book, probably no more than five minutes. I'm going to choose a scene from very early. Uh, what do you need to know? The seven years before this novel begins, Nell and her father used to work together uh, at the New York Public Library, which was her dream job, until uh, he ends up firing and destroying her reputation over, uh, they have an argument over a map that spirals out of control, I think, as you said in, the, uh, in your intro. And so Nell has not seen or spoken to her father ever since. And right before this excerpt begins, Nell has just been told that her father passed away in his office overnight. And so she's come to the library to the first, for the first time since she was cast out to speak to her father's old boss named Swan and the detectives who were called when his body was first found. And then she finds something in his desk. <clears throat> a long time ago, the room in which Nell was now standing had been her favorite place in the whole city. The public areas of the library were breathtaking. She could not deny the almost otherworldly beauty of the rich wood-paneled walls, the gleaming chandeliers overhead, the old windows that loomed from floor to ceiling. But it was the simple, endless archives of the back offices of the map division that had secretly kept her heart. They contained tens of thousands of books and atlases and almost half a million sheet maps in their vast stores. If she had ever believed in magic, here would have been the place where she would have gone looking for it. Even now, as she ran her hands over the back of her father's leather office chair and breathed in the musty scent of ancient paper and wood, it was hard not to imagine that there could be some secret tucked between the pages of an unassuming text. Every time he'd brought her with him to work in her youth, he'd sat her on its well-worn cushion and promised her in his deep, solemn voice that this office would be hers one day. She had believed him. Heart attack, the officer said, to draw Nell's attention back. He probably went fast. Age catches up to us all, unfortunately, his partner concluded. I just, Nell sighed, despite everything, the gap between them, the damage they'd both done to each other, tears were threatening. She pinched the bridge of her nose to stop them from falling. Why don't we give her a minute, Swan suggested to Lieutenant Cape and his partner, who politely withdrew to the other side of the room. Are you all right, my dear? He asked once they were alone. Yes, she said. She didn't know. Let me get you a tissue. He patted her shoulder. I'll be right back. Nell smiled gratefully. Thank you. The, the library's back offices swirled quietly around her as she sat huddled on the edge of her father's desk, next to the mess strewn across it. Researchers were finally getting to work in their cubicles, turning on their computers and shuffling through their mail. And past the staff door, patrons were browsing the stacks and choosing seats at reading tables, clicking on lamps and pulling out notebooks and flipping pages. Children were running through aisles and sneaking around the lobby. Taxis were pulling up and dropping off passengers outside. Nell tried to think about all of it out there and nothing in here. Gradually, she realized her hand was resting on the corner of the desk where the hidden lock was. Ever dramatic, her father long ago had a secret compartment built into his desk that only he, she, and perhaps Swan knew about. He kept especially valuable maps inside while working on them for security's sake, he'd said, even though the NYPL had never been robbed in the history of its existence. But when Nell was young, and he'd been a slightly gentler version of himself, he had hidden little notes to her there as well, and she would reply with childish drawings of maps she copied or created herself. All she had to do was push her index finger forward a little bit. The dullest, quietest thud told her the compartment had opened. Slowly, without moving anything but her hand, 
Nell reached inside. There was just one thing there this time, a slim, leather-bound shape. Not a book, but a leather portfolio. She moved her fingers another subtle inch, feeling the familiar texture. It was the leather portfolio, she was certain. The one that had originally belonged to her mother before she died, and Nell's father had taken to using it as a way to remember her. As a child, the portfolio had held almost magical power to Nell. She used to watch her father slip it into and out of his briefcase when he went to the library or came home in the evening, trying to imagine what beautiful work could lie inside. There were other maps he brought home too, but those came in clear plastic sleeves or cardboard folders. Only the most valuable, the most rare of them, were carried in the leather portfolio. Nell wondered at all of the priceless maps she must have laid eyes on as a small girl. Long after she and her father had stopped talking, she had sometimes thought of the portfolio, about the things he still carried inside of it. And now here it was, hidden in the mess. Lieutenant Cabe was still at the door beside his partner, the two of them giving instructions to the rest of the employees in the corridor, and Swan was over at the bookcase, plucking tissues gently out of a box to bring back to Nell. For a split second, no one was looking at her. Before she could think about what a huge mistake it would be, how much trouble it could get her into, Nell slipped the portfolio out from the compartment and into her tote bag in one smooth motion and returned her hand to the top of the desk. Uh, so that is a little taster for the story. Uh, but to say one more thing before we open it up to the discussion portion, um, one of my favorite things to tell potential readers about this book is that even though it's, it is fiction, um, it is actually based on a real-life cartography mystery. So back in the early 1900s, um, map-making was just grueling and time-consuming work, even more than it is now, because, you know, without um, computers and, and satellites and GPS, if you wanted a map, every mile you had to measure manually, and then you know every copy you had to draft by hand. And there were these two small-time New York City map makers. Their names were Otto G. Lindbergh and Ernest Alpers, and they had cornered the market early on those foldable um, gas station driving maps we all used to have in our glove compartments. Um, and so they they were the first ones in. They had all of the contracts, and they were the ones making those maps. And they were really worried that several larger companies like Rand McNally, for example, had started stealing their work in order to catch up, but they were desperate for a way to prove it. And so what they did to protect themselves was create a phantom settlement. And now a phantom settlement, it's a, it's a somewhat obscure cartography term these days, but it basically means an error that's on a map, but an intentional error. And the errors can be anything from, um, like a, a little dead end road off of another road that's not really there or a small mountain where the land is actually flat or in this case, even a tiny town out of the way that doesn't exist. But the upshot is that these, whatever your phantom settlement is, it works like a copyright trap uh, because if your tiny secret phantom settlement turns up on another cartographer's map, the only way that could be possible is if they stole your data since your phantom settlement is an error, right? Uh, so while they were out surveying the countryside of rural upstate New York for their next map, Otto and Ernest, they came up with their brilliant idea. And so they invented and hid a tiny town in the middle of nowhere on this next map. And they told nobody, not even anyone else at the company. And they named it using a combination of their own initials, sort of like a secret signature. And then their map was published, it came out, it went on sale. Sometime later, their competitor, Rand McNally, released its version of the same geographical area. And to Otto and Ernest's surprise, they spotted their made-up town on Rand McNally's map. And so they sued and went to court, claiming copyright infringement, because they argued the only way their town could be on Rand McNally's map is if Rand McNally had copied their work instead of doing their own land survey because if they had done their own land survey, they would have seen that there was nothing there because the town wasn't real. And then Rand McNally stood up in court and said, but the town is real. 
So Otto and Ernest and their lawyers, they got a photographer and they drove out to the middle of nowhere in rural upstate New York, where they'd originally planted this fake town, ready to prove that there was nothing there and claim their victory in court. And this is a true story. When they got there, instead of empty land, they found a gas station, a general store, houses with actual people living in those houses, and an official town record in the county's administration logs with the same name that Otto and Ernest had made up from their own initials. So this town that was not supposed to exist at all somehow did. Uh, and I won't spoil what happens next. You have to, uh, you have to read the book to find out. Um, but that incredible real life story is the, um, the inspiration behind this novel. Um, so yeah, thanks for listening. It is such a cool story. And it was, um, you know, you talk about the phantom settlements in the author's note, and then that story in the closing of the book. And it just <laughs> kind of blew me away. Like, the it, you know, the, the magic and how the reality and the ma magic tie together. So oh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like as, as amazing as any fantasy story. I had a, a really hard time actually when I was writing the book because I couldn't decide whether to put the story in the beginning of the book or put the story at the end. Because if you put it in the beginning, it might spoil too much. But if you put it at the end, people will read the whole book not realizing that like part of this story is actually true. You know, like this really <laughs> happened. I think you did a nice job. I, I liked having it at the end because it was like, wait, what? It's <laughs> <just> so surprising. <laughs> just gotta read it um, again. <laughs> so, so yes but also a great reason for you, for people to read the notes that come after the end of the book. Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that reading and that story. Um, I, one thing that really struck me with this book was kind of that sense of love and awe, both for libraries and maps. And at the beginning of the story, when Nell enters the New York Public Library, she you described it as a shiver of wonder. And then when she entered the map division, it was a jolt of electricity. Will you tell us more about how libraries have influenced you as a writer and a reader beyond making sure your brother got you some extra books? <laughs> He's a great brother. I mean, yeah. Um, no, they are, libraries are just you know, as I said, they were such a huge part of my childhood and then continue to be a huge part of my life now. And I think one of the most magical things about them for me was that um, I really was one of those kids who, um, as soon as I knew that being a writer could be a job, that's what I wanted to be. I, you know, because you, your mom reads you bedtime stories every night. And at first you just think these are great stories. And then eventually you realize like, wait a minute, somebody's writing these, which means I could write these someday. <laughs> um, but it, it, there's just something about, I remember being a kid and going into these libraries and there's just, you know, thousands and thousands of books. And it just felt like, it felt like coming home. And it also felt like what I was dreaming that I wanted to do with my life was possible because I could see all of these books, not just the books, you know, on my shelves at home, you know, like the, the 10 or 15 or whatever you have as a kid, but just thousands and thousands, like more books than I could ever read in my whole life. And it just felt like I, you know, that, that people are doing this and that you could do this too, if you try hard enough. And so it was just a place that I would return to a lot to just kind of feel, I don't know, among my people, I guess, especially when I was having a hard time with a draft or something like that. That's a wonderful way to say it. I love that. Oh, all the people that we meet in the library without meeting them. All yes, those stories. Yeah. yeah. Um, will you talk a little bit more about or talk about your kind of personal familiarity with map making and scholarship before tackling this book? Or how sure. did you come to write maps? I, you know, I, um, so I have to admit, I knew very little in the um, scholarly sense about maps. I just had a great love for them because they sort of feel like the same thing as a book in a way. They're, they're also stories is how they feel to me. When you open them up, you can see, you know, which roads lead to where and what cities have older names, what have new names. And then you kind of wonder about like who, who made this map and what were they trying to tell you with what they you know, which countries they put on it, which countries they didn't, which names did they choose. 
And so, yeah, it just always felt like a different kind of the same sort of story. And so I had, you know, just been in love with them forever and thought they're, they're just beautiful. And, um, I thought because of that, it was going to be pretty easy to write about maps. Actually, I mean, it's funny to say that now, um, but I, yeah, I pitched it to my editor and she was like, fabulous, amazing, mysterious, let's go. And I sat down and was like, great, I love maps. This should be easy, right? It was not easy. <laughs> um, and so that was where my very long research process began. And um, it was how I stumbled upon um, you know, the, the ways that phantom settlements work and the ways that they used to make maps in the 1900s versus the way they make them now and how electronic maps th work these days. Um, so it was, um, I, I think it was far more research than I've had to do for anything else, but I, I of course I loved it, so. Oh, that's wonderful. Will you tell more about that research process? Did you get any help from New York Public Library staff or other map archives or <laughs> cyber mapping people? I did. Well, I, um, so the unfortunate thing is that as soon as I started, um, kind of writing the first draft in earnest, the pandemic happened. And so everything shut down. And so, uh, I wasn't able to go, I, I used to live in New York city and I had been to the New York public library many, many times, but at the time that I'd started writing the book, I'd moved away and then everything shut down for a very long time. So I had to write the whole first draft of the book and the revision basically from memory, like how I remembered the library and what it felt like when I was there like years ago. And fortunately, um, right before we had to go to copy edits with this book, the, um, you know, the vaccines happened and I got, you know, I got both my shots and then we were all able to travel a little bit. And so right before final edits, I was able to go back into um, the New York Public Library and walk the halls and just make sure that it still felt the way, you know, that I had described it mm -hmm. accurately and, and things were where I had put them and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So it was, that was really nice. And it was really, um, it was funny. I was so shy, actually. I had this plan that I was going to walk into the map division and like tell them that I had written this, <laughs> you know, this book about, uh, about their map division. And I had all these facts about like, they really do have uh, half a million sheet maps in their collections. And I walked in there and just didn't say anything to anybody. I just stood in the corner and like looked and thought it was so beautiful. And then I just ran out the first time somebody was like, Oh, can we help you? Do you need something? And I was like, Nope, bye. <laughs> so that, uh, yeah, that was, that was my, uh, research, uh, in the New York public library, but it was so nice to be back. And I spent, I think probably at least four hours there that day that I was there, just, you know, walking the halls, climbing the stairs, that kind of thing. Is the, um, you talk about like, the basement where they have all those uncatalogued maps. Do you know mm -hmm. if that's real? I do not know if that's real. Okay. Um, I mean, I do know that they uh, receive, they can receive, you know, donations of rare books or manuscripts or maps like that. But, and, and they definitely have some kind of an intake process where they have to, um, you know, check the provenance of all these documents and make sure that they are actually real and worth something. But I don't know if it's actually in the basement. Although I do <laughs> think that they are, that backed up they really do have so many people that which is it's sad that they um don't have the staff to get through all of that but on the other hand it's also something's really heartwarming about that 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 many people want to give something to the library you know to to yeah. let them keep it forever and to take care of it so it's it's um mm -hmm. yeah it's kind of nice oh, sounds so cool makes me want to <laughs> go <laughs> We did get a fun comment from the um, from the audience. Mm -hmm. Said, "I love this book and got it as soon as it was available. After that, I called the maps department at the University of Wisconsin and discussed the themes with the director there. They invited <laughs> me down to see the collection, so that is coming up. Thank you for putting me on this journey, Punk. Oh, oh my goodness." Wonderful. Yeah, that is so exciting. Yeah. Um, I went to Milwaukee and they have a beautiful map collection. So, oh yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> um, so do you remember how and where you first heard the story of um, Aglo, New York, and Rand McNally maps? I do, and yeah. did you encounter any other like larger than life stories that you couldn't fit in, managed to fit into the book? Yes. Um, so I, yes, I remember, I remember where I first heard that story. And then I do have two, I have two other stories that I was researching They're They're on like the cyber map side that I just couldn't get into the book in their form, but they, um, 
they they're definitely inspirational um but i so it was at least at this point probably like 10 years ago or something i was in grad school uh for creative writing and we had one class that met once a week and so at the beginning of that class the professor would always open by saying uh does anyone or did anyone read anything interesting over the last week did you talk to someone interesting did you learn something you know wild and um you know different people would have different things to say each what a great time, way to start what, a class there was, i'm sorry what a great way to start a class yeah it was really yeah it was a, a nice i think if i ever teach that's going to be my opening question because it was very cool but there was uh, one student, I can't remember who it was now, but they said, I read this really interesting thing. Did you know that um, in dictionaries, there's always one word that's not real. It's a fictitious entry and it has a fictitious definition. And it's usually in X, Y, or Z, if you're curious. Um, <laughs> and it functions in exactly the same way. It's so that other dictionary makers can't copy your work because if you can find your fake word in their dictionary, obviously they've copied you. And we were all like, that's so amazing. How cool. And then somebody said, did you know they also do that with maps? And that that was it right there. I went home and I started researching. That's how I first heard about phantom settlements. And so I started researching and I found uh, the story of this town. And um, I mean, it really took because that was about 10 years ago. And, you know, the book came out six months ago. <laughs> so mm -hmm. uh, it, it was a really long um baking process, I guess, if I want to think about it like a cake. So I really, I turned it over for a really long time trying to figure out exactly what story I wanted to tell with it. But that's when I um, heard it first. But um, to, to tell you the, the other story of something that couldn't make it into the novel, but I found while I was researching maps, uh, it's just, it's the wildest thing. Let me see if I have it right. It's, so there is this farm. It's like a family farm. And it's in the middle of Kansas, I think, just like right in the middle of Kansas somewhere. And about, I don't know, so some number of years ago, people started turning up at this, like no one had ever come to this farm before. It's just, you know, it's like a family and they're raising some cows or growing corn or something. And then a couple <laughs> of like decades ago or years ago, they started noticing that more and more often there would be somebody turning up at the farm, like looking for something. And sometimes it was something bad, like they thought um, that somebody on the farm had stolen their phone. And they're like, it's my, my find my iPhone says that you've stolen my phone. And they're like, we have no, like, we don't have your iPhone here. It's not here. And then sometimes it would be bounty hunters turning up, trying to find um, somebody who had skipped bail. Once it was the FBI looking for a wanted person. And it was like all these um, so people would show up and be like, I think my lost package is here. It says it was misdelivered. And they're like, we don't have your packages. And they couldn't figure <laughs> out what was going on. And so they'd hired, you know, did like detectives and, and like called the newspapers and been like, what is happening? And it turns out that um, whenever basically whoever like runs the internet, I don't, I don't even know how to phrase it, but they had put in a default coordinate for whenever they didn't know exactly where something was located in the United States, it would just default to the exact geographic center. And that's where this farm was just like by <laughs> coincidence. And so whenever any kind of GPS thing didn't know where in the U S something was, it would say it was there. And so over the years, they just had all these people turning up, like, you know, looking for their packages or looking for lost relatives or looking for, you know, their dog or something, because wow. I guess nobody, you know, we, Every time we invent something, we don't think through everything yet because we haven't encountered everything yet. And so this became a thing. They have a big sign now right at the front of their farm that's like, we don't have your phones. We don't, we're not hiding your family. Like, do not come here. We don't have, you know, because they, I guess it's a thing where it's just so entrenched now that they still do get people showing up, even though they've tried to correct this now. But I just thought, I mean, it felt kind of magical, like in a, a kind of a scary but a really neat thing like what if there was this portal where everything you know that you couldn't find on everything map actually was right there. here at this farm yeah <laughs> oh the sequel to the cartographers yeah goodness wow yeah you said there were two stories or yeah the other so there's another town kind of like the one that's in this book so this i think because it happened in the 1900s it became this kind of um you know, this folktale that got passed around. And so people know about it, but it didn't really affect 
the world in any kind of great way yet, but in um, the early 2000s, I think, so right after Google Maps had started to become a thing, there was a similar situation that happened in England with a town called Argleton. And so probably somewhere on some paper map or, you know, in something, somebody had put a phantom settlement called Argleton and it was right in the middle of kind of the suburbs between these two other towns. But because we were then in the age of Google, I guess Google found the town's name and because it is both very smart because it's a computer and also not as intelligent as us because it's an algorithm, it decided that it should fix this error. And so everything that was within the Argleton border, it started like renaming streets and changing people's addresses and like business addresses to that town. And so all these people were like, what is happening? That's not where I live. That's not the name of my shop. Like what, people can't get to my store. No one can find me, you know, because Google Maps had just tried to like change the driving directions to everything. And so it took a couple months for them to sort it out. But I, um, that was also another story that kind of gave me inspiration to how to write the Haberson map that's in the book, because it, it was both very smart, but also incorrect at the same time. Mm -hmm. I couldn't get to that, that perfect point. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I do have another question here. It says, was there any documents or books on the Eglo story outside of fiction treatments like yours? It seems so larger than life, perfect for the screen or a work of gripping nonfiction. Yes, actually, um, it's a YA book that I think they've also made into a movie by now at this point. It's called, it's by John Green, is that his name? He's a very famous YA writer. Yeah, John yeah. Green. Okay, John Green. Uh, it's called Paper Towns, and the movie's got Cara Delevingne in it, I think. Is that her name? Yeah. So that, um, I remember when that book came out, because I had already heard of that town, and I was still trying to even get started with my book. I'd write, like, you know, 20 pages and then throw it away and then try 20 pages in a different direction. And I, I don't know, I had, you know, some 20 pages at that point of some attempt and his book came out and I was like, I can never write mine. Like, oh no, he's already <laughs> done it. It's over forever. <laughs> so, but luckily it took me so long uh, to get mine out that I think they're far enough apart. And they're also very different. He, he does really interesting things and different things with his, which I'm glad to find out. I did not read his book until I had finished mine because I didn't want there to ever be crossover but after i read his book i was very happy to see that they're not they're both about the town but in very different ways oh wow yeah, yeah. and we have it at the library there you um, go <laughs> always um another oh another person had a question for me how odd um they're curious about the map behind me so this map is actually a 1904 map of Anoka County. So I thought it would be a nice backdrop for our conversation. So it is not the Aglo map, um, but a fun Minnesota map. So we have a lot of maps here at the Northtown Library. So how fun. Yeah. So um, one question that is repeated throughout the book that I that actually made me think a lot was what is the purpose of a map? And there's so many different answers in the book based on who is asked the question. Mm -hmm. Such an incredibly simple but complex question. Will you talk a little bit more about the impact of the question or how you would answer it? Yeah, so my, I think my answer is probably pretty clear once you get through the book. Uh, uh, which is that I think the purpose of a map is to bring people together. I think that's why we make them because you're, you are trying to say, this is where this is, this is where this is, you know, this is how far each thing, but the whole point is that you're also at the heart of it, trying to say, this is how you get from here to me, you know, this is how you find me. And I, um, I, I've kind of always felt that. So when I was in uh, university, it was before, uh, you know, we all had smartphones. And so the way that you traveled was you got, um, you know, those big lonely planet guidebooks of like whatever city or town you were going to. And, and that's how you got around. And because I was a college student, I mean, they were, they were fabulous books, but they were really expensive for college students. And so there was a group of us, like five or six friends who we would all buy the ones that we needed and then just share them back and forth with each other when, you know, so if I bought the London one and then my friend Krista was gonna go to London the next year, I would just give her my London one so she didn't have to buy it. And then I would take her Madrid one and, you know, but we all, at first we just thought it was about saving money, you know, 
But what we realized after like the third or fourth person to have a book is that kind of the best part of it wasn't that you were saving money or that you had these maps. It was that your friends had already left notes about stuff on the maps, like, you know, go to this restaurant or this road is the prettiest or, um, you know, like things like that, like this is this is the best view from from like this point right here. And so it sort of became you know, you, you wanted to go to the places that your friends had been to so you could use the same map that they had. And it was kind of like they were there with you in a little bit because you could stand at this point that, the, you know, that they had told you to stand and like look out or you could eat at the restaurant that they had circled and you knew that they had done that too. And, uh, and it was just really, it was nice and it was like getting to feel close to them. And I just thought, you know, that it gave me that feeling of like the point of this map that we're all sharing is to bring us together and like let us have the right. same experiences and be with each other, even though we're very far apart in time and in place. Oh, that's so beautiful. And so different from in in the book when Haversman is explaining, everyone just holds their phone and they stare at the phone and they stare at my map. Yeah. And they only look up when they get there. Yeah, it's and I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of that too. That is how I walk Good. around cities now because it's, it's so accurate. You know, you can't help it, but I sometimes will arrive at, you know, I have my phone and I'm just staring at it and I will arrive at a place. And it's funny because I will look up to make sure that the world matches the phone. Like as if the world is the less <laughs> real thing because my phone said I'm here. So this must be accurate. But in fact, like the world is the, you know, the whole point. Oh, oh thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, someone asks, had you, had you always intended to write speculative fiction or did you fall into it? Have you ever written in other genres aside from in your master's program? Mm, I have, well, I did try in the master's program. So I, I grew up reading science fiction and fantasy and I thought, um, you know, it's, those are my first loves, those two genres. And I thought I would always be writing in them. And then when I got to the MFA program, they were very genre friendly, actually. And so they did let me turn in, um, you know, weird stuff, as I call it. And <laughs> that was wonderful. But they also did expose me to a lot of literary fiction. And in the beginning, I did try to write some of that uh, because I, I wanted to see if I could do it or if maybe that was what I was supposed to write. I just didn't know it yet because I hadn't been exposed. It turns out it's not what I'm supposed to write. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> not. Uh, I should write weird things. So I kept writing weird things. And it's just, yeah, it's just what feels like me. I think there's, it feels like it's forcing it if I try to write anything else. That's great. <laughs> oh, another question. See, we know we have lots of people are engaged. Yeah. It's great. Do you have a band or playlist you listen to while writing this book to get in the zone? Ooh, it puts me in mind of the soundtrack for the movie National Treasure, which is a guilty pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> um, that one was so, okay. So what I do is I do have a soundtrack for every book, but it's always got to be instrumental. So I like that, that you said soundtrack because not like album of, you know, with somebody singing. And I think National Treasure was recommended to me. I think I did use that for part of it. <laughs> um, I might have also listened to the social network soundtrack because I was going for something that was kind of like moody and eerie and mysterious uh, that also did not have lyrics because if it has too many lyrics, I, it's just distracting for me. So mm -hmm. I think that that was definitely one of them that was in my, because like I said, this, I mean, this book took a lot of years. And so the, over the years that was in the rotation somewhere. Oh, how fun. Yeah. So how long, I mean, You've talked about the, the idea stewing or baking for a while. Mm -hmm. How long did it take you to write the cartographers? And what was the writing process like for you compared to the book of M? Yeah, so I, this is such a hard question to answer because I don't know if you count, if you count all of the thinking time, then it took like seven years, uh, which just sounds wild. But I think in terms of hands on the keyboard, trying to like get a draft out. I think it probably took, um, I don't know, maybe like two or three, two, maybe two or three, or maybe three. But I had, it, that was something that I had to learn with the cartographers, I think, is that it, it turns out that my process is I will get like a flash of an idea, like, you know, the Phantom Settlement on this map. 
and I will just sit down and try to run with it right away. And that doesn't work because that's not a story. That's just like a flash and you don't have enough yet. And so when that falters, I used to think, you know, so the first time that I tried that seven years ago and it faltered and I thought, okay, well, there's just, there's just not something here. It's just something cool, but it's not a book. And I put it aside and thought that I had failed. Um, but it wasn't that I had failed at it. It was just that it wasn't done cooking yet. And so over, I mean, at least a period of like five years or something, I would pull it out and I would try different angles. So at one point, the whole thing was set in a, like a top secret government facility and they were all like spies. And it was very, you know, futuristic. And the, the electronic map that's in this book was kind of like the main map. And it was very, you know, it was very like spy thriller. And then in another version, I think it was set in China at one point. And, and it just kind of, I just kept going through all these iterations trying to figure out like what was at the heart of it. And it wasn't until I set it at the New York Public Library and I realized that it was, it is very much about maps, but it's also at its heart, like more about the family and the group of friends who find this map and what the secret on the map does to all of them. So it's really about these human relationships around the map. And it wasn't until I got to that point that I realized like, oh, here, this is the story. This is what I'm trying to do. So um, I would say that I'm, a, I'm not an outliner. I'm not a planner that I just, my brain doesn't work like that. And so I think what, it, what was different between the book of M and the cartographers was that the, it was realizing that, that that's the way my brain works is that I get a kernel of an idea and then I just have to turn it over and over and over while I'm working on other things sometimes, but it's just, that's my ramp up process. And it just takes stories like a really long time to develop for me. Wow. I am very excited to read the book of M <laughs> and the future library, which I found in our Libby collection. I'm very excited for those. That's another one about life. I seem to have a thing about libraries, I guess. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so one of our viewers shares, the book of M still gives me nightmares. Oh. <laughs> um, I think the loss of one shadow as a symbol is so original. How did that come to you? That, let's go way back. Um, I think it was one of those things like maps for me where I just, I think that the image of a shadow and a person is just really interesting and beautiful because they, you know, they're, they're like twin images, but one is considered the opposite than the other. And it just feels very, you know, kind of metaphorical and thematic. And then there are a lot of stories across, you know, different cultures where there will be like a shadow trickster god or there will be a something that steals people's shadows or even like in peter pan peter pan's shadow like jumps off of him and runs away and he spends <laughs> you know for the first part of the book or the play or the movie like trying to get wendy to sew it back onto his feet so mm -hmm. that he can have a shadow and i i just knew that i wanted to do something with shadows too you know and it um it took me a really long time to figure out, I think what I also need, going back to the previous question, one of the things that helps me get into a story is if there's some real life believable kernel to it, because mm -hmm. the stories that I write are weird and supernatural. And so if I can ground just like one corner of it in reality, it makes it feel, um, you know, like, like possible, like if you, you're reading it and it really could happen. And so what it was for the book of M, because I had spent a lot of time trying to figure out like, disappearing shadows is cool but like why would people's shadows actually disappear like how would that and yeah. it turns out that actually in our earth um on one day a year if you are in the right location your shadow will actually disappear for just a couple of minutes um on that day and it has to do with the the angle of the sun over the earth but um as soon as i read that that there's a place on earth it's it's usually right around the band it runs the band runs through india so if you're in india in the right place in india on a certain day and you go outside your shadow really will disappear and then of course it always comes back and that was my way into the book because i thought what if on this very cool but normal day everybody goes outside and their shadow disappears and then a few minutes later everyone's comes back except for one guy like then what happens and then that's how i got into the story Oh, wow. Ooh. Another, you know, just like you said, weird thing, but, yeah. but what if? Yeah. Can you um, 
So you talked a little bit about how you've always wanted to be a writer and that's a job. Mm -hmm. And then you became a writer, which is very exciting. Um, how did you, can you um, talk about kind of the process of landing a publisher and how you became a writer as a job? Yes, yeah. Uh, it feels like such a long road for me because I, um, it started, you know, when I was, when I was a little baby punk and I had wanted to be a writer ever since I was, you know, like five or six. And I remember going through school and saying like, I hate math. I hate, you know, whatever. I just want to write. And then I used to tell my parents, you know, the minute I get to university and it's like my choice and I can choose my major, I'm going to choose creative writing and I'm going to be a creative writing major. And they were like, okay, you can do this. This is, you know, uh, and I was like, I will, I'm going to show you. And I got to <laughs> university and I promptly just chickened out because it was too scary. And, um, I, I think at the time I just wasn't ready. I loved writing so much, but I also knew that I was kind of too immature for it. I was one of those teenagers who would start a novel every day, you know, and write five pages of it. And then the next day I would just start another one. So I like, I had no, I had a lot of passion for it, but I had no discipline. I had never even finished like a story at that point, you know? And so I, I got a major that was not creative writing. And then I ended up going to grad school in something that was also not creative writing. And then I had a corporate job for uh, probably four or five years, I think. And it was very interesting, but not fulfilling. Mm -hmm. And I reached a point in my uh, like mid to late twenties where I realized that if I didn't try now, I, I might not ever do it because the longer you wait, the less likely you are to take a big jump like that. And so that was the point at which I, um, I actually quit my job and I, um, when I applied to creative writing programs and I got into the master's program at NYU. And that was really the thing that turned it around for me because it was the first time in my life that I felt like I had permission, I guess, to take writing as seriously as I wanted to, because before that it was always the side thing that I did, like mm -hmm. the thing I was doing, on the weekends for fun or the thing that I did after I finished my homework or my other, you know, grad school stuff when I was getting the other degree. And it was like, I didn't feel like I was allowed to take it as seriously as I wanted, but in the program, I really had to, cause I had, you know, professors <laughs> waiting for my workshop papers and uh, you know, I had to turn in a dissertation to graduate. And so that really, I think it taught me how to finish things, which is what, that was the big thing for me that I needed. I needed to learn how to finish things. And so when I got out, uh, actually, I remember on my first day of workshop, I had a professor, Darren Strauss, and he told all of us, you know, because we we're all sitting there like very excited and eager. And he said, OK, I know that all of you are very ambitious. You're very talented. That's why you're here. And I know that all of you think without a doubt that the thing that you're writing now that you got into this program with that you brought here, you think that's going to be your book. It's not going to be your book. It's going to be the thing that you start as soon as you graduate, because whatever you have now, you're going to learn on that thing. And then you're probably going to throw it away and you're going to start something new. And of course, none of us believed him. We we're all like, we'll, we'll show <laughs> Darren, like, you know, this is my book. It, it was not, he was right about everyone, everyone. Uh, and so, yeah, it was, uh, the first thing that I started writing after I graduated was the book of M and it took, um, I think about, about a year to write the first draft. And then I revised for six months and then I, I started querying agents and that's where it went from there. Congratulations. That's great. <laughs> um, another question from the crowd. What has been your family's response to your career choice now that you're big league? Um, do friends and family approach you all the time with ideas about zany things you just got to write about? LOL. <laughs> um, I'm very happy to say that my parents were always super supportive of um, me wanting to be a writer. I think it was mostly my fear that was holding me back the whole time. I mean, my mom was like, have some kind of a job to feed yourself <laughs> while you do that, you know, like make sure that you're eating. But uh, she, I mean, she really has been so supportive the whole time. So that's been really nice. But um, sometimes, sometimes actually friends do approach me with ideas, but I actually, I know this is unpopular because they're all, all the writers in the world on Twitter are always like, don't tell me your ideas. The idea is the easy part. I think it's kind of fun actually to hear them. And so, uh, yeah, so I just love it. Oh, how fun. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I wish, mm, all those different ideas. Wonder what'll happen next. Yeah. On that note, are you working on something new now? I am. I, um, I just finished uh, about, I think about a week ago, I finished the first draft of my third novel. And so I'm now in like 
panic revision mode because I'm, supp I'm supposed to give it to my editor uh, right after Halloween, some sometime right at the beginning of November. And so that is very close. <laughs> it just feels like super close, but uh, I'm, I'm really excited about it. It's going pretty well. Um, it's also kind of a doorstopper. My, the cartographers in the Book of Ember are kind of long. This one is also kind of long. Um, and the way that I would describe it, I think, so if the Book of M is like post-apocalyptic fantasy kind of, or dystopian fantasy, and the cartographers, I would call it like a mystery with some magic. I think this one is starting to feel kind of like a sci-fi thriller. That's the vibe okay. it's got. So, yeah. Oh, how exciting <laughs> to watch out for that. Mm -hmm. So what, um, will you talk a little bit about, like, do you have a favorite place to write or like about your writing process aside from letting things percolate mm -hmm. yeah um my i have a couple of writer friends who so as i said before i'm very much just a fly by the seat of my pants kind of exploratory discovery writer and um for whatever reason most of my other writing friends are like meticulous outliners <laughs> and i think it's really interesting because they are super meticulous outliners but they will also like write an entire book on their phone while they're waiting for their kid to like do gymnastics every day like they you know they they drive their kid there and they sit in the car and they write their book on their phone and i just i can't do that my process is very uh i have a desk and it has a big monitor and every day i sit down almost like it's a day job like i sit down by 9 a.m i'm at the computer and i'm sitting at this you know this desk with like an office chair you know and i'm writing there for like hours and then when I finish, I turn the monitor off and it's really like I've left work, even though it's in my apartment. And um, part of me wonders, because the more we joke about our processes, if it has something to do with like their, their outlining and their planning is so detailed that it allows them to have a kind of chaotic routine about it. And because my, um, I don't know, my brain is so chaotic, I have to have a really rigorous routine about the way that I write. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. I like that. And it kind of gives options for people, you know, thinking about how, what their process is and what works best for them. Yeah. Um, I mean, it turns out you really can't, I don't know how, uh, Mike Chen, his name is Mike Chen. Um, I don't know how Mike does it, but Mike really wrote his last book on his phone. <laughs> so, um, I'm wondering what books or authors inspire you as a writer? Oh, good question. Uh, what is the last thing that I just finished? Oh, it's called uh, Thistlefoot. I just finished it a couple days ago. And it's by, I think her name is Jenna Rose Northcott or something like that. The book comes out in just a couple days or a couple weeks, I think. And it's about, it's a retelling of the Baba Yaga myth. Um, but it's it's just so, so much, it goes way deeper than the usual fairy tale retelling does. It gets really, really serious and deep and, um, it's really, it's beautiful. Uh, I think she was, she might've been a poet before she has a couple of poetry books out. And so when you read it, it's just like reading poetry. It's gorgeous. Um, mm. So I really enjoyed that. And then one of my, one of my favorite authors right now is RF Kuang. She's just brilliant. Um, actually, she also wrote a book that just came out, I think about a month ago. It's called Babel and it's set at Oxford University. And a lot of it takes place in their library too. And it's about a department of translators that can do magic by translating words back and forth between two languages. It's like what gets lost in the translation is their magic. So it's oh, kind wow. of like, you know, brainy and nerdy and dark academia in the same way that the cartographers is, but it's just, I mean, it's so good. It's so good. I love that book. <laughs> Something for us to read while we wait for your next novel. Oh yeah. No, please do. Babel is, it's so, it's amazing. Oh, wonderful. And then um, we are getting towards the end of our time. Do you have any final comments for our re readers? Final comments. Um, I can tell you the funny story about uh, the, the my first book. <laughs> um, it actually takes place in the library again. Um, and it, it goes way back to when I was like five or six. Uh, so, when, so when I was like five or six, um, I used to write in the, the kitty section of the library. And so I had written a book about, um, I'd written a story, it was a story about a spider who just wanted to make friends, uh, but everybody was scared of him because he was a spider, you know? And then eventually he saves a bumblebee instead of eating her when she falls into his web. And it's like a match made in heaven and, you know, happily ever after. And 
So I, you know, I, I'm six. I'm very proud of this book. I take it home and I show my mom. And she, like I said, has always been really supportive of, you know, like really tried to nurture that creative side of me. And so she thought it would be so neat if she secretly took the, the pages that I had written and drawn on to her work and laminate them and get them bound. So it would look like a real book. And so when she, she did that one day and then she came home from work, she called me over and was like, look, here's your, your book. And because I was six, I thought I'd been published. <laughs> <laughs> like if only it was that easy. If only. So that was my first book published at the age of six, you know? <laughs> Yeah. So wonderful. And then it was a, got a spot on the bookshelf and everything. Of course. Oh, like premium spot on the bookshelf. Yeah. <laughs> oh, how fun. Yeah. Um, a couple more questions um, just came in. If you could give a piece of advice to an aspiring writer, what would it be? Ooh. Okay. I would say, this is what I wish somebody had told me when I was starting out, that um, writing basically that writing is just really, really hard. And I know that sounds kind of like a bummer, but what I mean is I think usually in this world, we are all taught to think that if you're good at something, it comes really easily. And that can be true sometimes with like sports or your job, or I don't know, like doing math in your head or something. But with writing, uh, it just isn't true. Like it doesn't matter if you're a beginning writer or you're like this Pulitzer Prize winning, the most amazing experience, like it's still really hard. And um, when I was starting out and it was that hard, I used to think, you know, I had these moments of doubt, like maybe it means I'm not really a writer or maybe I'm not supposed to do this. And if somebody had been there to say like, it's always this hard, you're doing it right. That would have, I think it would have gotten me through it quicker. Oh, wow. Hmm. Sounds like like a really good thing to end on, but we have another question that just came in. <laughs> okay. um, Someone, what was the hardest part of the book to write? Mm, it was, I think it was figuring out that Nell and her father were estranged and that they, they're kind of like at heads for the whole book. Because when I, like I said, when I started it, all I had was like maps are cool and mysterious. That was the, <laughs> the extent of the premise that I had. And so it took me forever to find Nell and her father to begin with. But when I found them, uh, pretty early on in the process, I, um, I thought that they were like best buddies, you know, and it was going to be a, like Nell and her father go off on this, you know, scavenger for hunt for adults trying to solve this map thing. And it just like wasn't working. They kept getting in fights all the time when I was writing. And I was like, why, why are you arguing? You're supposed to be doing this together. And it wasn't until I realized like, oh, it's because the map is the thing that has pushed them apart. And the whole story is about how does that map slowly bring them back together. And so that I think, I mean, that took me like hundreds and hundreds of pages to, to figure out. But when I finally figured it out that then everything clicked into place. Oh, like you said at the beginning, it's about family secrets. Yep. It is. Well, it has been a pleasure to speak with you this evening. Um, for those of you who haven't read yet read cartographers, it is fantastic, and I highly encourage you to check it out. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, we're so excited to see the next book that comes out, and hopefully <laughs> everything goes good as you edit and get it to your editor. Yes, please. <laughs> thank you again, Punk Shepherd. It was a wonderful evening, and have a great night, everyone. Thank you. Bye. That wraps up our Anoka County Library event with Pong Shepherd. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Jamie Ford. Jamie Ford is one of historical fiction's foremost chroniclers of the Chinese American experience, best known to many as the author behind the modern classic Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. His latest, The Many Daughters of Afong Moy, hit shelves in August. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, 
Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.